Support for the Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. It's the Capital Connection. Back with us this week is State Senator James Skoufis. He's a Democrat from New York's 42nd Senate District. He is the chair of the Senate Committee on Investigations and Government Operations. And it's always a pleasure when he joins us. Welcome back to the Capital Connection, Senator James Skoufis. The pleasure. Well, big news this week on redistricting. And I'm guessing as a Democrat, you're happy about this. New York's highest court has ordered the state to draw new congressional districts ahead of the 2024 elections. The decision for the New York Court of Appeals this week on Tuesday could give Democrats an advantage, says the Associated Press, in what is expected to be a battleground for control of the U.S. House. The state's bipartisan redistricting commission will now be tasked with coming up with new districts, which will then go before the Democratic-controlled legislature for approval. As I said before, I'm guessing this is good news for your party. Look, it, it remains to be seen whether it's good news for for the party or not. I, I think it's good news in terms of how this is supposed to work and how it was supposed to work from the beginning. The the IRC, the Independent Redistricting Commission, was was sort of short circuited first round last year and couldn't produce the constitutionally required map that they have to produce to the legislature. And that is, you know, there's a lot of noise out there about sort of how we came to, to, to this place. The, the reason why we are here, the reason why the, the quote-unquote special master had to come in was because the IRC could not produce a map to send to the legislature. And so the court is coming in now and, and directing the, the commission to get back to work whether they can uh, this time uh, come uh, to, to terms and send us a map. Uh, hope springs eternal. Uh, but if, if they can, then there can't be any, and, and of course, if we approve that map that they sent to us, then really there can't be any, I would argue, uh, accusations of gerrymandering because that would be the Independent Redistricting Commission map. Uh, and so let's see how the process plays out. Uh, if they send us a map that that. Uh, they can come to terms with and that we approve, then I think I think that's a good thing for the process. Uh, now, I, I do believe that at some point over the next six, seven years, whatever it is, we do have to uh, reflect upon the, the at least the first round. If not, you know, we'll see what happens the second round, the, the failings of the structure that the IRC uh, was set up to be. Clearly, there's room for improvement, and we have to make sure that I, uh, for the next census, that this is set up in such a way that the Independent Redition Commission cannot fail. Uh, we, we know that they can fail. Whether they will fail this second time around remains to be seen, but they certainly can fail. That's what happened last time, and we have to fix that. And don't we have to fix on some level the census itself and getting an accurate count? I mean, in the last one, there was worries of things like ICE 
and others coming in because of all the politics surrounding immigration? The short answer is yes. And and look, I find it hard to believe uh, in this situation, but me personally speaking, I find it hard to believe that we went from uh, being just shy, about 50 people shy of earning an additional uh, representative in the U.S. House when the census results came out. By the skin of our teeth, we lost uh, getting an additional uh, member of Congress right. to the following year being about 500,000 people uh, short of a, an additional member of Congress in the annual sort of estimates that the census puts out. And so, uh, you know, yes, there's out-migration. That is an issue that we absolutely have to address. But that is such a large delta over the course of one year. It raises a red flag for me about whether that first sort of official once every 10 year count was an accurate count to begin with. That's huge. I mean, that is huge when it comes to the money that can be given to states, right? It is absolutely huge. Every additional seat we've got in Congress means more money for our state, an additional voice on policy. And by the way, that's regardless, especially uh, on the first, the money issue, that's regardless of the partisan breakdown. Uh, there's, there's power in numbers, and uh, you know, not having that additional seat definitely hurts us in D.C. Well, there is a seat that we're going to be fighting for, at least to fill out the term, and that's George Santos' Republican seat in New York. I see former Congressman Tom Suozzi has thrown his name in. What do you think the chances are the Democrats could get that seat? I think the chances are, are very strong. Uh, he, he's a proven winner, putting aside, of course, the, the ill-fated primary that he waged against uh, Governor Hochul, uh, he is the perfect candidate for that type of district. He's sensitive to taxes as a Democrat. Uh, he's, he's sensitive to crime as a Democrat. And look, his challenge, any Democrat's oh, challenge, uh, especially out on Long Island, is, is going to be that that region of the state has swung particularly hard to the right over the last few years. But he is a perfectly suited candidate for that district and for that region. And I have to imagine that he enters as the favorite. And the Republicans were making a big deal. I spoke with Ed Cox, that chair of the party for the show last week, and he was making a big deal out about how the Democrats agreed, you know, to support Swazi and the governor called him in and scolded him and got him to get in line. And, you know, we're going to take our time. We've got 30 candidates. We're going to vet them. And my response was, well, the election is February 13th. It's coming quickly. And you're sounding a lot like the criticism you used to give the Democrats. It used to be that the Republicans were always in lockstep on a candidate who they were going to support. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that the Republicans in that race are in a little bit of disarray. And there have already been reports about how some of their top candidates, uh, their two top candidates in particular, are deeply flawed. One is not even a Republican, they found out. How do you not know that out of the gate, that one of the Republican, quote unquote, Republicans you're looking at is actually a registered Democrat? Another uh, has some significant problems uh, stemming from uh, his, his time in, in the NYPD. And so you know, they clearly are in a bit of disarray, whereas Democrats are united in that race. And as far as Tom Suozzi's trip to, uh, to, to, to visit and meet with the, the sitting governor, I view that as a, as a positive. They're, they're mending a fence. Obviously, you know, there, there was uh, some, there's some negative feelings associated with that primary uh, from, from the last cycle. And to the extent that they can put that water under the bridge, I view that as a positive. Well, 
you've been having some fights of your own when it comes to a county official, including calling for his resignation. State Senator James Scoofus, I'm reading here, report credits Orange County Human Resources Commissioner Langdon Chapman with steering $822,900 in taxpayer funds to his brother-in-law. He released a report criticizing the county, Orange, and officials there concerning their procurement of an IT service owned and operated by a county official's family member. The report accuses officials taking more than $800,000 of taxpayer dollars for, quote, direct enrichment. And you called for Chapman's resignation and further investigation. What's going on here? And, you know, we have been reporting on this, of course, on WAMC, and they're not holding back. They're striking back out against you. They are. And look, I, I'm not one to, to shy away from a fight, even if it's uh, in, in my backyard. In fact, I think those are some of the most important fights to be had. Uh, and and look, in, in this case, uh, my constituents in, in Orange County have been thoroughly ripped off, and I'm calling them out on it. I've referred the matter to, to law enforcement agencies. And, and this was, uh, uh, very importantly, this was a no-bid contract. Uh, Langdon Chapman is the right-hand man to the county executive, and he is viewed as such by everyone in Orange County. And he openly admitted the, the Orange County legislature is doing you know, their own investigating here. He openly admitted to them on camera that, yes, the very idea to give this contract to his brother-in-law's company came from him. And so, uh, you know, the, the nefariousness of this is right out in the open. Uh, it's almost a million dollars that we're talking about. And if you dig into Star CIO, you'll see that up until recently when I started make, making noise about this, they weren't even registered with the Department of State as, uh, as a business in good standing. Uh, they've got no physical location. They're literally a P.O. box in a strip mall. Uh, out in Westchester County. Uh, there's one guy, the brother-in-law, there's one guy uh, who is the total workforce of, of this company that's been given almost a million dollars. And so there are all sorts of problems uh, with, with these contracts, uh, with the decision to go with uh, this, this company. Uh, they got two other, uh, essentially, they got two other quotes from, uh, from competing uh, IT companies that came in significantly lower than the company in question, the brother-in-law's company, uh, and yet they still went with, uh, with the relative's company. And so lots and lots of questions, lots of red flags, and at the end of the day, like I've, uh, I think I've shined the light on, on this issue, and I've brought it to everyone's attention, and now at, at the end of the day, in terms of criminality, it's going to be up to, to law enforcement. They're going to have the, the final say there. I hate to put it in these terms, but I try to think about what the audience is saying or shouting out loud to their radio. So is this the tip of the iceberg, Senator Scoofus? I mean, you can't be the only county that has no-bid contracts, and it certainly isn't the first time we've seen this kind of activity, let's say, that's alleged to be not above board. So I'll answer that question in two ways, and both ways have the same answer. Uh, if we're talking about Orange County and whether this is the tip of the iceberg, Undeniably, yes. In fact, I've had lots of other uh, county employees uh, come to me and have described other contracts that are potentially problematic. Now, if the question is about other counties and other jurisdictions, I think the, also, the answer is also yes. And, uh, you know, procurement and contracting is something that is pretty deep in the weeds. Uh, it's not a very, uh, it's not a particularly sexy issue 
for another elected official to uh, to, uh, to 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 really put their arms around, uh, but this is where taxpayer funds are spent. Uh, and if we're interested in protecting uh, taxpayer interests here, we have to be looking at contracting. We have to especially be looking at no bid contracting. And it would not surprise me at all. In fact, I would fully expect that this sort of behavior, uh, steering contracts to preferred or favorite companies. Uh, it happens probably in places other than just Orange County. Doesn't it also draw very clearly the distinction between the laws that are made, the rules that must be followed, and the enforcement part of that? That's right. You know, laws are only as good as, uh, as, as they're enforced. And, uh, and, and in this case, look, you know, I, uh, I'm glad I, and, I, and, and relieved that law enforcement is, is looking at this. And at the end of the day, like I said, they're the ultimate arbiter of, of criminality here. But it's really up to elected officials to, uh, to prevent this before it happens. And whether that's the county executive, whether that's the county legislature, there needs to be checks and balances. Uh, and if there are none, you have situations like this. The county legislature was completely in the dark about this particular situation. They literally had never heard of this company that's getting almost a million dollars to to allegedly do IT work uh, for the county in in this sweetheart deal. And so, you know, there needs to be mechanisms in place where one set of electeds, one branch of government can check the other. That clearly failed in this instance. Uh, But when it does fail and there is criminality, you know, that's why we have law enforcement. Our guest, Senator James Skoufis, the Democrat from New York's 42nd Senate District, Westchester County Executive George Latimer is going after the congressional seat to run against Jamal Bowman in New York. And when we were talking about redistricting before, depending on how those lines are redrawn, could impact that race. He says he's running no matter what. And it brings up the sort of divide between the more centrist Democrats in the state and the more progressives. That would be Bowman, the progressive, and Latimer, the more centrist of the Democrats. What are your thoughts on that contest? So, so I don't accept the premise of that characterization. Oh, no. That, the, the, that there is a, a, a stark ideological uh, difference here. Because, look, I, I would argue that many of the things that, all due respect to him, that, that Congressman Bowman has done is not progressive. Uh, voting against one of the very few Democrats to vote against the infrastructure bill in Congress is not progressive. And uh, George Latimer, on the other hand, I would argue, has been one of, if not the most uh, forward-looking progressive county executives in the entire state. And so, so look, you know, I, I, I think that throwing bombs, which is something that Congressman Bowman has done a lot of uh, over the last couple of years, throwing bombs should not I equate to uh, owning the moniker of progressivism. Uh, And if we look at policy and substance, uh, I think George Latimer is is the more forward-looking of the two. Now, look, there are going to be some uh, individuals and some groups who who try and uh, make this uh, contest about race. I believe the contest should be about who is the, the, the most qualified individual to hold that seat. And if, if that is the, the metric that we look at, I don't even think it's close. 
I think George Latimer is by far the most qualified. Can we take that as your endorsement? Sure. No one's asked, no no one's been asking me for the endorsement yet, but I uh, if you're asking uh, me whether I'm endorsing George Latimer right here, the answer is yes. Well, you heard it from Senator James Scoofus. He's a Democrat from New York's 42nd Senate District, and he's the chair of the Senate Committee on Investigations and Government Operations. So, Mr. Chairman, what other big investigations do you have going on right now? So, so the one that we're really focused on is, uh, is uh, on the competitive uh, power ventures CPV power plant in Orange County. And some of your listeners may recall that this is the power plant that was at the center of the Joe Prococo scandal uh, uh, several years ago. Joe uh, Prococo yes. was the right-hand, yeah, he was the right-hand man to former Governor Cuomo. Uh, this is the power plant that employed his wife in a low-show job and caught him up in all sorts of criminality. And one of the questions uh, core questions that uh, really has, has not been pursued until now is how did CPV get its permitting and, and how did the DEC, who is in charge of much of the permitting, Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, how did the DEC handle the political pressure that they admit was being placed on them during the permitting process? And one, of, uh, one example, uh, that is a stark example that requires, I believe, oversight, which is what we're doing now, is in the criminal complaint from years ago, there's an unnamed DEC official in that complaint who, who, who admits that he told the governor's office that on one particular permit that we, meaning the DEC, need a push from above in order to get this done. And they were talking to the governor's office. How in the world should we accept as not only the legislature, but as the public, seeing an agency that is tasked with protecting our health tell the governor's office, we need a push from you guys to get this permit done, a permit that directly impacts the health and well-being of New York State residents. That is outrageous. No one's been asking that kind of question since this all came down, but now we're, now we're asking it. So we have, uh, the committee has put out document requests that we have just started getting responses to, to the DEC, to CPV, uh, and others. And, and these document requests look for, for emails, text messages, lists and lists of questions. I, I'm, I'm happy that so far uh, everyone has been uh, cooperative in, in responding. If for some reason at some point uh, anyone stops being cooperative, you know, we do have subpoena power, but right now everyone's being cooperative. Do you get to have the ear of the governor when it comes to something like this? So, so it needs to be said very clearly that this governor was not the governor when this all went down. And so there's no culpability, in my opinion, uh, with, with Governor Hochul. This was strictly a a matter of the, the Cuomo administration. And, and look, to the extent that the current governor could be helpful at some point, I don't know what that would look like. I will certainly reach out to her. But, uh, but I don't anticipate uh, her administration being involved really hardly at all on, on this investigation. Well, let's turn to a term I had never heard before until I looked at your website, Senator Scoofus. And 
I don't want to scare anybody by this, but I'm going to have to say it, and that is you're encouraging and have launched an initiative to encourage municipalities to combat zombie poles. What are zombie poles? There's no walking dead involved with zombie (laughs) poles. It's sort of a cute term that uh, they're also referred to as uh, double poles. Um, I think that's probably uh, how, how the utilities describe them. Most most regular people uh, talk talk about them as, as zombie poles, but the utilities are double poles. And basically, when new poles are put up, of course, the wires on the old pole, which is right next to the new pole, have to be moved over. The utilities uh, that own the poles in my area, Central Hudson, Orange and Rockland, whatever the utility might be, they are not allowed to move the, po- the, the wires that Verizon has up there or that other providers have up there, Fios uh, wires. And uh, those other providers have to, one by one, move their wires from the old zombie pole to the new pole. And some providers do a good job, and they're pretty quick at it. Some do a terrible job. I have one provider in Orange County. They're called Frontier, where they have wires on old poles that have been sitting there for over 3,000 days. 3,000 days. I'm talking 10 years. They have not gotten a crew out to an old pole to move the wire to the new pole. And, of course, you can't remove the old pole until all the wires are off of it. So you have these extremely... Uh, ugly, first of all, uh, situations where you've got a decrepit pole next to a second pole. But in some cases, uh, even more importantly, these are uh, these could be hazards. You know, these are very, very old poles. Some of them are rotting away. Sometimes they fall down. And God forbid they fall down on, on uh, you know, someone's building. God forbid they fall down if, if they're next to a road, uh, blocking a road or even worse. And so uh, we have uh, started encouraging uh, municipalities in Orange County, and I, I think that all municipalities around the state should be encouraged to do this, to pass local laws that would fine utilities on a day-by-day basis if they are not prompt in removing their, or not removing, transferring their wires to the new poles. Well, let's go from poles to crash gates. We'll remember that crash, I know you do, of the bus where about 40 people were injured in that crash and you and a number of Hudson Valley lawmakers were calling for a crash gate. This would allow emergency officials to travel between exits because this bus went down into a ravine. Has there been any progress on that or any more conversation on crash gates? There has. And for for your listeners, this was the bus taking children, students, uh, from Long Island out to Pennsylvania, in part through Orange County, where I represent. Uh, and over the summer, there, there was this really horrible crash, this worst-case scenario type of crash. And a couple of adults, uh, unfortunately, who were on that bus with the students lost their lives. And one of the, the fire, fire departments in particular, the, the one that is, would have been closest to the crash, if not uh, for the fact that they had to drive so far from where they're located to the nearest on-ramp to Interstate 84, uh, has been looking for this crash gate, so to speak, for years and years and years and, and, and has gotten nowhere. And so in light of the crash, we renewed our effort 
and and I'm happy to say that there's been significant progress. I the the DOT has been extremely attentive to this uh, in the aftermath of of the crash, and we are finalizing our application uh, in coordination with the DOT, who has uh, with us settled on a specific location. Uh, we've secured the funding uh, for the crash gate. Everything is lined up, and we're about to send off the application to the federal government, uh, who requires final sign-off because it is an interstate. Uh, and so this is actually moving uh, remarkably quickly uh, by government standards, and, and I'm hopeful this is uh, going to be resolved, and, and that area of Orange County is going to be a lot safer for it. Sounds like a benchmark to me for other communities as well, along stretches of throughway and places where it is hard to, if somebody goes off the road, to get to them. That's right. I think uh, we would be wise to be looking to do these all over the place. Now, you know, they're not they're not rare. You know, they do exist in some places. And and for your listeners, you know, it, as they're driving the throughway, as, as they're driving major highways, I, I they they may notice. Um, you know, some uh, some very sort of unofficial looking roads with with literally a metal gate along the side of them, which clearly are not on ramps or off ramps. Those are crash gates. They allow emergency vehicles to hop on and off of uh, a highway uh, outside of the traditional on ramps and off ramps. And so, yeah, we, we need more of these for, for police and EMS and fire. Uh, and, and they should be strategically located where. Uh, you know, you have to otherwise travel miles and miles and miles uh, for one of these vehicles to get onto the site of a, a crash scene uh, on one of these highways. That, you know, every second matters, every minute certainly matters, and, uh, and, and they're relatively cheap. We're not talking millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, to do these crash gates. So these, these would be wise investments. We should be doing more of them. I wish we could do more of this program. Unfortunately, we're already out of time. Our guest has been Senator James Scoofus, a Democrat from the 42nd Senate District in New York. Senator Scoofus, I've got about 20 other things I want to ask you about. We'll have to leave it for next time. That's assuming you're willing to come back and talk to us again. Always willing. And in the meantime, uh, happy holidays to you and your listeners. And to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The Capital Connection is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. You can listen to The Capital Connection anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. And join us again next week at this same time for another political conversation. For The Capital Connection, I'm David Gustina. Support for The Capital Connection comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities through the Public Schools Unite Us initiative.